the scarcity mindset affects everything. And the worst part is when it starts to turn internal, that's when it can get really bad into the burnout territory. Hello, and welcome to our Foundant Connected Philanthropy podcast. Today, we are privileged to have Brittany Wilson and Nia Wassink from the nonprofit Reframe podcast as our guests. Their podcast is about undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting nonprofits and their staff. Brittany and Nia are experienced nonprofit professionals, and they have seen the nonprofit world from so many roles and perspectives, including program, business, fundraising, even board members. I am excited to be talking about your podcast, why you started it, and then also a little bit about going beyond scarcity with both of you today. So let's dive in. As I caught up on your podcast, I see you're on episode 103, uh, just released on Monday. Uh, <laughs> talk about DEI training for effective change and not to check a box. I love that. I just listened to it today and such a great listen. I love how you share stories on these important topics and you don't exclude the frustrating points or the reality. I appreciate that so much. Is that something you try to work into how you present? Yeah, absolutely. When we started this podcast, it really came about after a couple years of venting to each other. You know, we became each other's um, confidants when with the struggles of nonprofit working in the nonprofit sector. And over time, built up a pretty long list of possible possible podcast topics before we decided, you know, we really should do something about this. Great. Let's flash back to the beginning and, and what you've done so far and what you're hoping to achieve through your podcast and, and how things have evolved. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much again for having us, Tammy. Um, like Brittany said, it really was started as this friendship of support for each other. And then we thought, gosh, there are probably other people in nonprofits <laughs> who also need the support. Right. Um, so can we make this into a, a podcast or something that got to a wider audience? And we just, in the infancy, started a, a spreadsheet with all of our ideas. And when we got to about 50, we were like, okay, we can make this, make this happen. Um, and we wanted to tell the real stories, you know, I think so often nonprofit staff, they're used to telling the um, the rosy side of things. You know, everything's great. Our program's making this huge difference. We've changed lives. Let's not talk about the fact that our board's making our lives hell. Let's not talk about the fact that our staff is so underpaid, they can't even live in the same city they work in, right? Like those are the things we don't want to talk about. And so Brittany and I said, well, let's, let's shift that. Let's flip the script, and let's exclusively talk about those things on our podcast. Have you seen uh, how that resonates with your listeners? And have you heard from them on, I, I, I just hear so much about burnout and how to prevent that or, or being able to express the concerns and, and bring it to a larger audience for change. How, how do you see your podcast doing that? Yeah, absolutely. We have people that write into us or, you know, catch us at some nonprofit event that they see us at and tell us how much they feel seen 
And I think that's a big part of it, right, is just naming um, kind of the hard parts of this work, because this is hard work. And we all do it because we want to make a difference. Um, but sometimes there's a cost for that. And so being able to value both sides of that, I think, makes it um, a little bit more bearable during the tough times for those of us that are in it. And ultimately, what we're wanting to do is keep people in the sector, right? We need people in this sector. And so how can we provide the perspective and the comfort there? Um, because maybe not everybody has a Nia or has a Brittany. And so that's why we wanted it to be as if you're sitting down and having a conversation with the two of us which means it's very open, it's very genuine. It also sometimes includes choice words, which is why I believe we are the only explicitly rated uh, podcast about nonprofits. <laughs> but again, we that real factor was incredibly important to us when creating this. Yeah, I, I really like how, as you said, you could feel seen and maybe if you're out there alone without a Nia or a Brittany to, to bounce things off of, you may might not realize that it's something so many other nonprofits struggle with, and it's not something you need to combat and achieve just solely on your own. It's, it's something, a dynamic that often comes into play. So finding the community uh, that you bring together on these topics and, and talking through them and, and also providing ideas and thoughts of what not to do, examples, and stories. That's, that's how I learn the best. So um, what are some of your most favorite or most listened to episodes on? Do you, mm. have you track that? Oh, yeah. Um, as of right now, our most listened to episode is actually one of our early ones on white saviorism in, in mm. nonprofits. Uh, which I think is really interesting that that's the thing that people are looking for. Um, and it makes sense. I, like the whole episode is about essentially how nonprofits, the, the entire sector and philanthropy were built by white women. And it was often built to uphold structures that gave them power. And so even today, we are still battling up against those systems that were often not created for effective change. They weren't created for many people to feel comfortable or safe in. And so when we have this white saviorism as like the overarching theme of why nonprofits came to be, that's a major systemic change that has to be deconstructed for us to actually be effective at our work. Absolutely. I would also say probably because we just recorded it. So no one has even heard of it yet. But I am projecting into the future that this is going to be one of our most listened to uh, episodes. Um, so this is a little a little uh, sneak peek of what's to come. I don't know when this podcast airs, but our next episode is on uh, sabbaticals. So within the nonprofit sector. So we talk a lot about sabbaticals, whether it's in faith communities or whether it's in, you know, university settings, but now it's really starting to gain traction in the nonprofit sector. And how can we as a sector use sabbaticals to help, you know, combat what you were just talking about, that uh, burnout and fatigue and keep really amazing leaders in the in the sector, um, but give them time 
to find space and creativity and rest. Yes. Ability to recharge. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's just so much work that in itself, but then the emotional toll and everything else of the, of the work too, just, um, lends itself to, to having that be a, a definite good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, as we talked about things that we could discuss on our podcast here, we, as you know, Foundant does um, serve both funders as well as nonprofits. We have products and services and and we have communities on, on both sides. And that is something that we are seeing a lot more interest in recently with with some of the social justice um, awareness that's coming through is trust based philanthropy mm-hmm. and, and changes there. Have you seen any frustrations or successes on on that side that that you think would be helpful to both sides of our audience? Yeah, I, I feel like trust-based philanthropy is absolutely where we need to be going, and it's no easy thing. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about, again, uh, in philanthropy, funders have held so much power. And, and just by, you know, the institutions they represent, this is not a call out of any one individual, but you've got people with money funding nonprofits to do, do work. A lot of power there. And so trust-based philanthropy is basically saying, let's upend that. Let's give the power to the people. (laughs) Um, Let's stop asking for excessively long applications and significant reporting requirements and site visits. Let's just trust that they're going to go do the work that we know they're already doing. Um, and that's that's a process internally. We've worked with clients through my consulting firm of, you know, addressing the concerns at the board level, at the staff level, at the volunteer level, um, because it, it really is this entire organizational shift that has to happen. And we know it works. Like that, that's the best thing to like really hold on to is trust-based ph- philanthropy is truly how we can shift philanthropy in a place that makes the greatest impact, gets the dollars distributed as quickly as possible, and can be the most agile when our communities need it. Yeah. And and have a higher return on, yeah. on that. Um, I'm excited to listen into some of our uh, funder uh, trainings and webinars when we have clients talking to other clients about what they've tried and and I know one of them has been awarded and, and noticed by just giving the budget, the money to a, the group of people that mm-hmm. they typically fund and say, you make the decisions and yeah. how that changes everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yep. Oh, well, we're not fighting each other. Like, how can we partner together and make more effective use of this and, and just really having the decision they're the closest to the problems and and really know uh how how best to use that limited funding right so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and you br- you bring up such a great point Tammy with your position and founded of having access to both of those audiences um i think it's such a unique platform and I'm really glad that you're doing stuff like this, like these podcasts and these trainings and trying to 
um, really spark these conversations that are needed uh, because, you know, we can say all we want on one side of it, but you have both parties listening. And I think that can be really impactful. Yeah. And, and all the different places you can have those conversations. Uh, when we implement a new funder, oh, you know, what do, what does everybody else do? Well, what is the best practice? Mm. What should be, what should things you should consider? And really training our staff to help train the people who are open to those, but haven't considered, well, why, why do you want? follow-up reports. What are you going to do with them? Are you even going to yeah. read them, right? Yes. Why do you need an LOI? <laughs> Is mm-hmm. it going to make any difference? Does that really help, you know, the process or, uh, you know, character counts? It's, it's funny the stories that come up that technology touches that you can have somewhat of a difference, you know, mm-hmm. in, in implementing it with uh, the thought of like, give a lot of space, but just tell them what you expect the answer to be, right? You know, or things like that. And so we have checklists, we've made changes to our product as we've gotten that feedback and uh, then continue to educate uh, the funders on on what they can do to be more like that as well. Um, It's very collaborative and and, uh, people sharing their successes and and even working together with their communities to align their application questions to make things easier. It's, there's great examples, but it just needs to spread and continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and I think you can even think about technology as being one of those critical tools between where we currently are in philanthropy and where we want to go. Um, I'll give a great example. Harken back to April 2020. Like I know most of us don't want to remember <laughs> period of time. Uh, But there was a funder that was still requiring hard copy paper applications. And uh, we reached out to them um, on behalf of our clients and said, hey, our clients aren't in office, right? Everybody's working from home. We're in lockdown. Can we email these to you? Can we do something else? And they said, absolutely not. You still need hard copy grants. Um, And so my firm actually took it on and we we made copies for all of our clients and even former clients and delivered them all to to the funder on their behalf, um, and then went back and uh, again encouraged them to use technology. Um, you know, no nobody should have to spend that kind of time and money, quite frankly, to put in a grant application. Also, for a grant that's going to be really small, I think they give out like thousand dollar grants. So you know, it's like we can also use technology f- to improve efficiency, which also then makes it much more accessible. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we have solutions for both audiences and and we have a a product that really helps nonprofits stay organized on when the deadlines are, what they sent in last year, when the reports are due and all this. And it's just interesting to, to talk with them as they're deciding whether they could get a tool that's just real basic to them mm-hmm. doing their jobs efficiently versus using something that's kind of free just to, <laughs> you know, just to right. avoid spending any money whatsoever. And that brings us to that, that scarcity mindset and um, really understanding the place of power that the nonprofits could and should be coming from, and it should be recognized from the other side as well. But by carrying that, by, you know, you consulting with your clients to help them 
see that in themselves. Have you seen any good examples of, you know, um, really doubling down and, and, and coming at problems, um, to combat that power dynamic? I know it's really difficult, so may, there may not be, but it, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, just being confident in the, the results that the nonprofits, you know, are able to provide and, and looking for partners that want to fund that and trust them. Yeah. We did an entire episode on technology um, in our podcast around that, this exactly what you're stating of, you know, nonprofits who, I mean, I can't remember how many times I've come into an organization and, you know, you're just kind of handed the tools that have been previously set up, right? And over time, it just becomes kind of that, well, that's how we do it. That's what we use. And a lot of times it can be really inefficient. You know, different systems don't talk to each other. You're having to do multiple entries and different, you know, databases, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, I remember one time somebody asking me for a report and I had to pull numbers out of three different softwares and then collate them and then dedupe them and all this. And it wasn't just something as simple as, creating a report and pushing a button. And so we do speak a lot to, you know, it is worth doing an audit of whatever systems that you're currently using and figuring out if, you know, even if it takes an investment to change, you know, any kind of, anyone who's been through a data migration knows what a pain it is and nobody wants to opt to do that. <laughs> However, if you're in a position that you can do the research and find something that is going to work better for your organization and you put the front end work into cleaning up that data, moving that data, the, you're going to end up, your return is going to be, you know, a thousand fold in efficiencies, in confidence of being able to use that data to you know, help with decision making and planning and all sorts of things that you otherwise don't do because it's just too clunky. It's not worth doing it. Yeah, yeah. and I feel like the the scarcity stuff uh, comes up so often in technology because that feels like the thing that can really be pushed to the bottom of the list. I mean, any of our nonprofit folks listening to this, you've all walked into an organization and opened up a computer where you literally had to blow dust off it, right? Like we've all been there. It's awful. Um, but scarcity goes to all levels. It's not hiring enough staff to get the job done. Right. It's right. not investing in the the time required to really get your board up to speed or train them. It's not hiring an outside DEI facilitator, right? It's it, it, the scarcity mindset affects everything. And the worst part is when it starts to turn internal, that's when it can get really bad into the burnout territory. You know, it's the scarcity mindset that pushes you to say, well, if I just stay up two hours later to write this grant report, that's four more kids we can help. If I just push a little bit harder, if I just skip this vacation, right? Like all of that is still based in scarcity. So as we work as a sector to shift to more of an abundance mindset um, and a place of valuing ourselves, our work, our clients, our organizations, it feels scary. Like it's, it's a totally different place than we've it's ever different. lived, right? Yeah. And so that that's where like, 
organizations need to have the conversations often and regularly and deeply at all levels, because it can't just be one person who walks in one day and says, we're shifting to an abundance mindset. (laughs) That is not going to work. If only. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But it really does need to be like this cultural shift in how we think about the work we do. Yeah. And I really just to add on to that, because I believe so passionately in it that it really comes down to value, right? And like you just said, valuing ourselves and valuing our work. Um, I don't know how many times I tell my clients, like, this is a business. Just because it's called a nonprofit does not mean that it's not a business and it operates like a business. And you need to be looking at the areas that you should invest in. And when you, you know, we all joke about the wearing 10 different hats, you know, like at a nonprofit. Oh, I wear so many different hats. Because the minute you show an inclination towards any skill set, you then become the manager of that, right? I mean, I, it's laughable. But one of the places that I worked at, I ended up being the de facto IT person. And anybody who knows me, like I am not an IT person by any means. I mean, I, I probably just was like, let's turn it off and turn it back on. And it magically worked. And then it's like, aha, you know about IT. You are now in charge of all of it. Right. But we joke and laugh. But over time, that wears, you know, when all of a sudden you're hired with a job description. And I get it, jobs evolve and change and whatnot. But when they become so vastly different, and really what you're doing is just plugging holes instead of hiring, you're just taking on tasks to quote unquote, save money, but really you're burning out your staff and you're creating further turnover instead of saying, no, we need to make the investment to hire what we need. Um, So. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And it's a slippery slope and really hard to draw the line on that slope of just a little bit. It, It just continues to to go further until you you are hitting that personal about your time. That's a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up about how um, it's not only with the nonprofit's resources, but but then personal time and setting those boundaries. Uh, I'm I'm pleased to see a lot of funders, at least that we work with, um, from the whole pandemic and and changes that they made to address those situations, really looking at them and, and understanding that they were the right decisions and, and way to set things up um, in a normal situation or investing in capacity. And there may be new tools that, that nonprofits need to deliver their, their missions more effectively or productively or to, you know, take it even further. And so, not limiting what the money can be used for also is a is a key thing that allows the nonprofit then to uh, to have the freedom to use it where it's needed and and it may be their people right yeah we we were lucky enough to see so many funders shift the way they did funding during the pandemic, you know, shifting entirely to general operating dollars uh, to kind of rapid funding, not requiring you know three to six months from application right. to actually getting the checks. Um, and many of those funders have maintained that, which is great and exactly what needs to be happening. We've also seen other funders, though, who have pulled back. 
We said, oh, the pandemic's done. We're going back to our old ways. We're only going to do programmatic funding in these ways. Um, and not only does that get away from any kind of trusting relationship, right? It, it's kind of this paternalistic idea. As a funder, we know how best to use these dollars. But it, it also just it hampers the organization's ability to do the really important work. Um, Brittany and I are both um, outside of Boulder in Colorado, and our community has seen so many disasters. We had the grocery store shooting a couple years ago. We had a massive wildfire that came in and burned down over a thousand homes. And so our nonprofit community stepped up in all of the ways. And what we saw was the ones who had access to general operating dollars were able to be really agile and meet the community's needs. The ones that were really hampered and and stuck with program dollars, they couldn't make those adjustments. You know, all of a sudden your after school program doesn't exist because your schools are closed because all the homes around them burned. You're requiring your grantees to still make those same restrict the funds to that point. Yeah, exactly. So like if that is the one thing people hear from this on the funder side, give general operating dollars, it's going to get the work done. It's going to get the work done faster, better, more efficiently, and more adaptively. Yes. Yep. And uh, just the tracking of that again, and the technology side that that just adds so much more to the whole effort versus streamlining it and allowing the nonprofit to spend as much time, as much effort on their staff towards their the mission and getting the work done and thinking mm-hmm. of new ideas, working on the strategy and and other other activities that have a bigger payoff than, you know, moving things around into <laughs> different systems and all yeah. that multiple times to save a buck. Right. <laughs> um yeah, in in terms of having that moving from that scarcity mindset, um, have you thought of, are there other resources or um, reports or tactics or anything that you've seen uh, the nonprofits you work with or other communities uh, look towards to get inspiration on those? I mean, I we have seen kind of tying back to what we were just talking about with funders Yes, you know, I echo everything that Nia was just saying to funders about general operating. We have seen more funders opening up opportunities like uh, staff wellness, so offering funding for that. Um, We've also seen funders opening up opportunities like the sabbatical uh, example I gave er earlier. There's some funders that will fund that. Um, or capacity building. The problem is, is while that is starting to grow incrementally, it's still few and far between. And, you know, there's so many people that apply and so few that actually get it. But I think the fact that funders are even, um, putting those opportunities out there allows organizations to start thinking about those like, oh, it's like it makes it okay. It shouldn't have to take that, you know, right. like we shouldn't right. need a funder to be able to say like, hey, this is worthy enough to fund a sabbatical for nonprofits to actually consider it. But unfortunately, that's where we're still at. And it's created those conversations now internally with organizations around how can we create our own assets for this, right? How could we plan for this? How can we try to create capacity for staff wellness 
opportunities or, um, you know, sabbatical opportunities. And so I do think that those conversations are happening more consistently now. I also feel like the whole conversation around scarcity is both like the personal internal work of identifying when that's coming up for somebody and then the larger organizational work. Like I know when I'm at my most burnt out is when I'm most likely to drop into scarcity mindset again. So for nonprofit leaders, board members, like that, that's something that we all just need to work on constantly, um, especially those of us from dominant cultures, right? Like a lot of that scarcity is really based in white supremacy and this kind of zero sum game. Um, And then we also need to in parallel, in tandem, be working on the organizational level stuff. Um, and there are so many great resources for that. I mean, we talk about Vule and Nonprofit AF all the time. I mean, he was the yeah. one who's out there talking about the um, Nonprofit Hunger Games, which is all based in scarcity and, and thinking that there's you know a finite amount of resources for us to all be fighting for. Um, so bringing in those other voices can help foster the conversations. But at the end of the day, it's just got to be a lot of conversations. You got to put it on your staff meeting agenda, your board agenda. You got to be talking about where is scarcity showing up in our organization and how do we start addressing it? And it's really having those conversations from the top down, right? I mean, so much of it is uh, controlled by that. And so being able to have a leader, a nonprofit leader, an ED or CEO who can have honest conversations about that with their board, you know, so often they're are they're reticent to say, you know, what their staff needs or what they need and to really educate board members on the realities of what it's like to work within the sector. And that because of there's these expectations, there becomes with the scarcity mindset, also this inclination to say yes to everything, right? So there's just boundaries. There's no such thing. It's out the window. And it's like, yes, we'll take advantage of that. Yes, we'll take advantage of that. And you know, I'm the first one to say, um, absolutely look at every opportunity, but, you know, really trying to evaluate what is that return and what's the cost on your staff and morale. Yeah, because stretching too thin will have much, much more costs than you anticipate in the short term. It, it, the long term cost could be quite significant. Oh, my I, I know there's so many things we could talk about, <laughs> and, and we are definitely going to have you back again um, on on other topics. But I really, I do appreciate your your time on this, and and I'm seeing how the community that you've created with your podcast and and supporting other EDs and and nonprofit staff to have that those thoughts and recognize that scarcity mindset in themselves and their organizations and they're not alone, how to talk that talk to get over the uncomfortableness of doing mm-hmm. it at the beginning and, and really um, then be able to share their stories of success with you, hopefully. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, like you said, there's a lot of conversations and, and we're always asked, how can you do this from the bottom up? But, recognizing and having the leaders recognize that it does need to come top down. And you'll be surprised at how much uh, your staff will be on board, of course, of, of supporting that mm-hmm. um, effort. Absolutely. Well, 
thanks again for helping our community learn more about turning this scarcity mindset into an abundance mindset. And I want to remind our listeners that we'll be including links to the nonprofit Reframe podcast as well as Brittany's and Nia's email, right? You're mm-hmm. okay with sharing that if there's Absolutely. any Absolutely. Yeah. stories you want to share with them or suggestions for their um podcast. I, I do enjoy the little E I see <laughs> with the Frank uh, talking, just telling it how it is. There's no limitations on words you could use or not. And we appreciate you taking the time out of your business schedules to join us. I do want to offer you one more final chance to give any final thoughts or advice to our listeners of both funders and nonprofits. I'll start on the funder side um, and say, keep Keep on this path. Keep towards trust-based philanthropy. Keep working to ensure that you're getting dollars out the door when your community needs them. Make sure you're listening to your community um, because we we need you. We need you in this fight. Our social issues are not going away. And ensuring that we've got great partnerships with our funders and nonprofit communities, it's going to be the way we solve it. And my advice for all the nonprofit staff out there listening is very similar. I mean, we absolutely need you. So if you are starting to feel the effects of burnout um, and recognize those, be honest, have those conversations, um, start talking about them internally in your organization. And I'm sure you're not the only one. And I know it's so easy to just start thinking about other possibilities of, you know, maybe should I make that jump to the corporate sector? No, stay put. (laughs) We need you. And how can you, um, you know, how can you be an example and affect real change within your own organization? And hopefully that just continues to permeate out. Great. Thank you so much. And our listeners, if you learned something from today's Connected Philanthropy podcast, please share it with others who might also enjoy and learn from listening. We look forward to connecting in our future webinars, podcasts, and community discussions, and we wish you all the best success. And again, thank you all for all you do.